From the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki. Hello and welcome to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. We're honored that you're joining us today. Now, if you're a listener in the U.S., it's Memorial Day, and thus great opportunity to get the family to listen to the show together. You'll then have a chance to discuss what you learned and how you'll take advantage of it. See, financial problems are a major cause of marital problems, so what better way to keep the family together than to listen to Wealth DNA Radio together and jointly make decisions based on the knowledge you gain here. Also keep in mind, if you don't gain some new knowledge during this hour, we have a 200% money-back guarantee. Yes, we'll refund double what it costs you to listen. Admittedly, I'm very confident we won't be paying out any of those uh, refunds today, uh, although we would. Uh, I just don't expect it to happen. Why, you say? Well, we've got a topic that's important to everyone. Whether you invest in residential real estate, you own a home, or you rent, everyone has to live somewhere, and that's also a key reason why even in the worst economic times, real estate values will never drop to zero. Now, another reason I'm confident I won't have to pay out any refunds is that we don't just have an expert as our guest, but in the Phoenix-Scottsdale area, he's the expert on the housing market. Now, regardless of where you are in the world, whether you're tuning into the live show or listening to the archive, I'm confident you'll be glad you joined us. And whether you're new to investing or have decades of experience, you're retired, working, or even unemployed, you should get a pad and pen or your electronic device to take some notes. Now, if you're driving, I suggest having a recorder for taking notes as I do, or go back and take notes as you re-listen from the archive. Then, uh, what is our topic? Well, I should cover that, shouldn't I? Topic today is state of the housing market, and regular listeners will certainly remember, remember, let's try that in English now, our returning guest, Michael Orr. I looked back at our archive of shows and was shocked to see it's been three years since we had him on last. A lot's changed in those three years, and we've been remiss in not getting him back on sooner. Now, we have a tradition of using a quote to set the stage for the topic. Today, I was tempted to play the song Our House by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, but instead, I thought, you know what? I'd better not. That would take up a little bit too much time. We have a lot of questions for our guests. So I just picked one of my favorite quotes related to our topic. The problem with real estate is that it's local. You have to understand the local market. Let me repeat that. The problem with real estate is that it's local. You have to understand the local market. Now, that quote is from a couple of greats in real estate investing and financial literacy, Robert Kiyosaki and Sharon Lecter. Today is Monday, of course, because that's our show is always on Monday. May 25th, 2015, it's Memorial Day in the U.S. It's 9.03 a.m. here in Arizona, and that's where our guest is as well. It's 12.03 p.m. on the East Coast and 18.03 in continental Europe. It's the only day ever like it. We'll do everything possible to make it a great one. Now, you're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. This show airs every second and fourth Monday at 9 a.m. here in Arizona. I certainly hope you can join us each time we air, we air, that is, if you miss a show, like the one on financial literacy with Sharon Lecter earlier this year, or you want to re-listen to them, you can go find them on the archive. Just go to wealthdna.us, where we list each of the shows, both upcoming and archived. Now, we're in the process of redesigning the website, which uh, you may have noticed, and appreciate any suggestions you might have. The key challenge we continue to work on is improving the search capabilities. So if you want to show, find a particular show, maybe including those with Michael Orr in the past, if you want to find it by topic, title, or guest, that's kind of our goal. If you have a problem finding a show, feel free to contact me, ron at wealth. DNA.us. Now, our sponsor today is BI Solutions Corp. They are a residential real estate fund in the Phoenix Scottsdale area. I think today's show is mandatory listening for the entire team there. Now, the U.S. equity markets, which reached a four four new record highs since our last show, are closed today for the holiday. Asia was up with Shanghai market up over three percent overnight. Boy, somebody's optimistic. Europe just closed mixed, and Brazil is down slightly. 
I mentioned the U.S. equity markets hit more record highs, making it 10 this year, and if you're counting, 108 since the Great Recession. I don't know about you, but when markets hit new highs, I like to trim my holdings, and I've never lost money taking profits. Many investors ask where they would put that money if they sell. Well, you may just hear the answer in the next 55 minutes. The advantage of joining us for the live show is you get to ask questions or make comments either using the chat window below the radio player or by calling in. But if you're listening to the archive, don't try them. They won't work. Trust me on that. If you listen to the archive of the show, on the other hand, let's say five or ten years in the future, you'll have some history to see what the information you heard today would have impacted your wealth accumulation had you joined us live. And from then on, I have a feeling you'll be a live listener. Our special guest to discuss the state of the housing market is Michael Orr, founder of the Cromford Report and director of the Center of Real Estate Theory and Practice within the W.P. Carey School of Business at Arizona State University, ASU for the locals. Michael holds a master's degree in mathematics from the University of Oxford in England, Of course, and spent 31 years in the computer industry working for companies like IBM, I've heard of them, Amdahl, I remember them, Splash Technology, Santa Cruz Operation, before finding his real calling as a provider of data, information, and insights in residential real estate. Let's give a warm radio welcome to Michael Orr. Welcome, Michael. Thank you for joining us on a holiday, and that's probably the only time you're not double booked. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I gave a brief overview of your background. How do you introduce yourself uh, at a cocktail party? Well, I, I just uh, tell people that I'm a real estate analyst and that uh, with a, I approach that with a sort of mathematical and uh, computing background. Um, I love digging into data and sorting out what's really going on and then telling people about it. That sounds like a rather modest introduction for a renowned expert on the housing trends. But, um, okay, so people now see you're kind of a modest guy that knows a lot. I like that. That's the way we're trained in England. <laughs> well, okay, that's a good point. That's a good point. A little bit different in, than, than, than the American style, I'll admit. Uh, I'd like to start out discussing the housing market first in general, and then we'll drill down to the, to the specifics in the Venus Scottsdale area where you're based, and, of course, I am as well. Would that be okay with you? Sure. Okay. If someone asks you, and I'm sure you get this question a lot, how's the U.S. housing market doing? How do you, what do you, you know, what do you tell them? How do you respond to that? Well, as you started by saying, it's all local, so um, it may be doing very well in some areas and not so great in others, and mm-hmm. um, uh, it changes all the time too. You can't assume that uh, if it was okay three months ago, then it's going to be still the same way now. So that's what makes it fun. Uh, but even within the Phoenix area, you know, different areas, different price ranges can mm-hmm. be doing very different things. So to generalize, though, if you just take the overall average, the U.S. housing market okay. is still in a process of recovery. And um, uh, we went through probably the worst crash since uh, the 1930s. And uh, most areas have recovered uh, uh, at least most of the uh, drop in uh, values that happened uh, mm-hmm. during the period uh, generally around 2007 to 2010. Uh, there are many areas now that actually not only recovered, but actually um, above that uh, high point, making new highs. But uh, that's certainly not true of the Phoenix area, which still has quite some way to go to get back to its high point of 2006. Okay. Now, you're based in Phoenix, and as I mentioned, with Arizona State University. But do you review and compare the housing markets in some of the major metro areas around the country and even around the world? Well, I don't do my own research outside of the Maricopa and Pinal counties. That's where I specialize. So what I do really is just take a a look at those people who are are doing a decent job counting the numbers elsewhere and just see if I can see those areas that are doing similar things and look at those areas that are – behaving differently from the Phoenix area. Uh, of course, there's a lot of people write about real estate, and you know, there's very great variance in the quality of the observations going on. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, you know, over the years, I've learned to, to uh, which people to, to trust and which people to ignore. Okay, on that note, before I forget, would you share with our listeners how they best contact you or learn more about the Cromford Report and your work at ASU? Well, if you Google Cromford Report, which is C-R-O-M-F-O-R-D, you'll, uh, probably the top item will be uh, www.cromfordreport.com, which is where I publish information which is designed for, uh, for realtors. Uh, I also have a research site at ASU, 
And if you uh, Google ASU real estate research, you'll almost certainly get at the top of the list the website for the information that's publicly available there. Um, you can get me on uh, email at mike.or at asu.edu. Okay. All right. So I'm sure you're going to have some follow-up questions, although uh, hopefully they'll send them to me so you're uh, not answering the same question three or four times. Uh, I see <laughs> some areas of the U.S. are currently doing better than others from a price of appreciation viewpoint. As you said, you're relying on, on others' data for this, but which areas are hot and, and rising the fastest? Well, the um, the areas that are currently uh, rising would be uh, many areas on the West Coast, uh, San Francisco um, area, San Jose, Seattle's very strong, uh, and then inland, uh, Denver, and many areas of Texas are still strong, Dallas in particular, but also Houston. Uh, the weakest areas are generally in the Northeast, mm-hmm. Um Though not strictly just in New England, Connecticut is weak, but so is um, the Washington D.C. and Maryland area in terms of appreciation over the last 12 months. And then our neighbors, New Mexico, actually uh, are the only state that actually saw a very, very slight decline uh, in home prices over the last year. Oh, interesting. Now, I noticed in your hot list you didn't include uh, areas like North Dakota, which are dependent on uh, the oil shale fracking. So I assume that the drop in oil prices and the whole kind of uh, change those markets are going through has is, is dramatically shifted their uh, their real estate uh, horizon. It always takes quite a bit of time for the real estate market to react to a change like that. So we haven't seen any significant um, reaction yet, but um, mm-hmm. it's sort of... Uh, the market uh, in real estate in all of those um, oil-rich, gas-rich states has been pretty hot, and it's starting to show signs of cooling down. But that doesn't mean that prices are falling, just not moving up quite so fast. And in fact, the whole country has had relatively um, uh, slow price increases over the last 12 months compared with the previous two years. Uh, but when I say slow, we're still talking about uh, an overall average of about five or six percent. So, you know, compared with inflation, that's pretty strong. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I didn't realize it was it was even that strong. Of course, like as you said, it has been a lot slower than what we got used to for a little while. Yeah, we were kind of uh, getting double digit uh, increases for several years, and a few people got used to that. So, uh, you know, five percent seems small, but if uh, inflation is less than one percent, as the CPI has been for a, a little while now, that that um, that means we're going at five times uh, the speed of uh, everything else. Okay. Now, you you mentioned uh, other parts of the country you're relying on on data from others and their methodology, their reliability. Uh, you mentioned Maricopa and Pinal counties, and just for some of our listeners who aren't here, uh, that is primarily kind of the Phoenix metro area. Is that a fair statement? Uh, yes. Uh, Pinal stretches down almost to Tucson, but uh, it's basically Maricopa is the primary county, about uh, mm-hmm. 85 to 90% of the the real estate business is in Maricopa, but uh, Pinal has become a significant and faster-growing county. A lot of homes being built there in the last uh, 15 years, and a lot of people live in Pinal but work in Maricopa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So that's the, the basic area. So for our listeners that aren't here uh, in, in the Phoenix Scottsdale area, that basically that's the uh, geographic area that your data concentrates. Now, when you developed the Cromford Report back at the turn of the century, doesn't that sound like a long time ago? Yep. You, you, you set up a partnership with uh, with the uh, multiple listing service, MLS, uh, to use their data, clean up their data, and then develop information from their data, correct? That's right, yes. And what's changed? Now, since then, of course, you're with uh, ASU, and that was, uh, I'm going to say, just about three years ago, I guess you joined them. I remember we mentioned that. Yes. Uh, you, you kind of announced them as part of our show. Uh, do you now have access to data beyond what you were dealing with before? Does ASU do some of their own research that uh, helps you? You know, Give us an idea of what's changed. Uh, well, the, uh, the data that I use for ASU is primarily information that is in public records, but it's not necessarily easy to access that data because a lot of it's in handwriting. So uh, I use uh, partners and licensed data from them, people who are willing to transcribe that data into machine-readable form, and then I do a lot of cleanup and, and processing of that to get it into a shape that you can 
handle it mathematically. Until you've tried to deal with uh, deed data and county record data, it's difficult to describe exactly uh, all the things you have to do to get it into a state you can process. For example, a lot of uh, transactions in real estate are between related parties. You know, uh, somebody mm-hmm. deeding property to a, a relative or moving it from their own name into the name of a trust or an LLC. And, mm-hmm. of course, those transactions aren't really third-party transactions and any point. price quoted. And it's not relevant when you're going to try and work out what's going on. So you have to sort of sift through everything and get it into a shape that where you're, you're dealing with true arm's-length sales. Well, but also I, a lot of people that may not be as familiar with this, the, the records aren't retained by address, for example, and, and even the address is sometimes un, unreliable. So they're really going by these cryptic descriptions of the uh, the legal description. That's really the, the anchor point. So yes. uh, get, turning that into a, into a property address and into a zip code and all of those kinds of things is in itself a job. It is a challenge. The primary thing that I use to try and connect all the records together is the parcel number, which is allocated by the county. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, But again, not every deed is going to have the correct parcel number. Sometimes you find a parcel number that doesn't exist, and you've got to find out what they really meant. Sometimes it's uh, there's a digit transposed, and you've got to fix that too. So it's a constant challenge trying to make sure the data you've got is as clean as you can get in. Wow. So when people see you on TV and talking about all of you know the, the exciting things going on in real estate, what's changing, you've got all this information at your fingertips, uh, they, they should realize that getting to that point is not uh, not so glorious. It's not so glamorous. And a lot of hours go into sort of really mundane, tedious stuff. But if you don't do it, the, uh, the, the data they're going to deal with is just going to trip you up again and again. So you have to do that cleanup work. Yeah, no, when we talked about it, I think for the first time you had it on the show, we talked a little bit about it. You know, realtors aren't always uh, as accurate as they could be. You know, the price that comes out in the millions instead of 100000 or whatever else. But, uh, you know, those kinds of things were difficult enough. I didn't realize you were actually doing it from some of the stuff from public records. I mean, that's kind of like uh, hitting your head against the wall when you stop. I guess it's pretty relaxing. <laughs> that's right. Uh, but I don't do it alone. There's... Uh colleagues who work for the information market who do a lot of the the grunt work there, transcribing it and uh, fixing some of the more obvious areas. Uh, But I still spend many, many days every month um, going through doing additional verification of the data to make sure that we're getting some uh, reliable answers. And I guess when you mention the information market, we should give kudos to uh, Tom Ruff, who's really kind of the whole founder and the the guy that uh, that set that up and, and kind of the guru over there. Yes, that's right. Tom and I have been working together uh, along with Jim Patterson, who also is one of the co-founders. And we've been working together for, uh, I guess, about seven years now. Wow. Let me remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. I look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. Our sponsor today is BI Solutions Corp., a real estate fund in the Phoenix-Scottsdale area appropriate for our topic. If you've missed some of the prior shows, uh, for example, those including uh, Michael Orr as our guest, or you want to re-listen to them, we maintain an archive of shows on wealthdna.us. If you'd like to get an email reminder of the shows or you have trouble finding past show, just send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us. We'll also keep you posted about future shows and events. And remember, during the show, we welcome you to ask questions or make comments. The easiest is to start a chat in the area below the radio player, or you can call in 917-388-4162, which, by the way, is also shown at the top of the Internet screen. Our topic today uh, is to discuss the state of the housing market. Our guest is Michael Orr, founder of the Crown for Report, director of the Center of Real Estate Theory and Practice within the W.P. Carey School of Business at ASU, and ASU, of course, stands for Arizona State University. Now, Michael, back in September, uh, probably October, I guess it was September of of 2013, I received a rather urgent announcement from you saying that the rapid appreciation we were seeing in the Phoenix market was about to grind to a halt. And like you said, back then it was double-digit. You were obviously very right, unfortunately, and that plateau continued for about 18 months. What data you know, do you look at? What were you analyzing that led you to that conclusion, uh, and, and obviously a very accurate conclusion? Well, the primary um, thing that changed, uh, it started really July and became pretty obvious by September, was that we mm-hmm. were getting far fewer homes going 
into escrow. Uh, basically, people weren't signing contracts at the same rate. And uh, so the numbers I measure on a daily basis of uh, what they call pending listings on the MLS right. uh, okay. was diving. And uh, when you dig into why, it was basically because the investors who'd been very active from about 2009 through to the middle of 2013 basically pulled up sticks and went elsewhere. And uh, owner-occupiers weren't really taking up the slack. So just the whole demand um, collapsed from pretty strong down to quite weak, almost overnight. And... um, that really uh, became obvious to me with a lot of the calculations I do between um, basically the end of June and the beginning of September. So most of my commentary at that time was saying, look, hold up, this this is going to be a changing market. Things are going to be much quieter. If we do get a lot of more supply, we could get into a negative market. But at, throughout this period, supply remained fairly tame. So what we had was really just um, a lackluster market with weakish demand and not very strong um, supply either. So instead of seeing upward pressure on pricing, we saw sideways movement for much of that period from basically October 2013 through to uh, February this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it really was a long period of time. Uh, you know, so really, if somebody wasn't a subscriber uh, to your service, uh, they wouldn't know that. And I'm thinking realtors specifically as, as subscribers. But then a person listing their property would have no clue that what you know they thought was going to be an average three months on the market might uh, might jump to uh, five, six, or even ten months on the market just because of that lower demand. So you you know mm-hmm. you really I think helped a lot of uh, potential uh, sellers to hold off for a little while or at least. Uh, maybe reprice as a result? Well, uh, I'm not sh- quite sure how wide the uh, the audience is. I, I give a daily observation for the Cromford report, which is intended mm-hmm. for realtors, uh, but I also give a monthly report for, for ASU, which is accessible by anybody, and I make the same sort of observations, just not quite so quickly or mm-hmm. so frequently. Um, but... Uh, what I was trying to communicate at that point is that don't sure. expect the price increases that have happened between 2011 and uh, 2013 to con- continue. Things sure. will slow down dramatically. And, of course, it just still varies by price range and location. And it was interesting during that period uh, that the very top of the market, really the, the multi-million dollar homes, really uh, started gathering momentum. Uh, mm-hmm. As you mentioned, we've seen a lot of... Um, peaks in the stock market and when those happen mm-hmm. the, the uh, very rich tend to spend money on real estate they're diversifying their profits and uh, the multi-million dollar home uh, market uh, went from strength to strength through that period but the bulk of the sales the ones in the sort of low and mid-range of the prices really uh, slowed down quite a bit and 2013 uh, to 2014 saw quite a significant reduction in the overall sales rate which was Quite disappointing, particularly to new home construction companies. Yeah, that really kind of put a halt there as well. That changed their perspective uh, dramatically. Now, on a prior show, you walked us through the sequence of data used as these lead indicators, just like uh, you were using back then. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think it's so important, and few of us really absorb it the first or second time. I think it's worth repeating for our listeners. So what's the earliest indicator you use, and how much lead time does it provide? Well, uh, the earliest thing I look at is a thing I call the Cromford Market Index, which is actually quite complicated to describe in terms of how it's calculated, but it's a very simple outcome. And you can find this on the home page of the Cromford Cromford, uh, Report website, so it's accessible to anybody. And it basically uses a scale that um, compares demand with supply. That's the primary uh, logic is demand and supply create pressure on pricing. And uh, the way it works is 100 is balanced. Anything okay. below 100 means that uh, we've got uh, uh, advantage for the buyer, i.e. supply is stronger than demand. And if it goes above 100, it means the opposite. The seller has the advantage. So you can watch that uh, number. When it dips below 100, you know that uh, the market's relatively cool. And when it's well above 100, the market's pretty hot. And I publish that number for the entire market as a whole, it's still, um, it, it, to go, it needs 
somebody who's interested in a specific transactions to dig deeper and look at uh, you know specific cities to see what's going on in each one of those because even when uh, the market is balanced there may be a seller's market in one city and a buyer's market in another now that overall Cromford index as i recall it's actually uh, available uh, without somebody even logging in so that somebody that right. doesn't have a subscription can get the overall uh, index correct yes if you want it by city then you need to be a subscriber but if you want just how is the overall market doing that's on the home page which is accessible to anybody and it'll show you the index for demand index for supply and the overall market index which combines the two of them so you can t- not only tell whether the market is strong or weak, but what's the cause? Is it low supply or high demand or whatever? Okay. And and as as you mentioned, it's available by city. That's one of the few that's not available by zip code, though, correct? No. One of the disadvantages of the market index is that you need a lot of transactions to feed Mm -hmm. into it to make it accurate. And when you go down to a zip code, there just aren't enough sales to give it a good, consistent um, history and it tends to get a little too volatile so i avoid using it for zip codes but for most of the major cities it works quite nicely and um, uh, it's one of my favorite mechanisms for predicting the future and i generally i would say it could give you at least six months notice of a a change in pressure on pricing sometimes that uh, it can give you as much as 15 months which it did back in 2005 um the Cromford Market Index started uh, flagging uh, negative signs in uh, April 2005, but it wasn't until uh, June 2006 that pricing peaked and then started going hmm. sideways and eventually collapsing. Okay, so about about six months. Uh, now, six some, months minimum. It, I'd say typical probably nine okay, or 12 months. months would be a sort of uh, delay between the index changing direction and prices changing direction. Okay. Oh, your example in 2013, you were seeing it in June, July, and by uh, by October, it was uh, it was really happening. So I guess that one was uh, you know right around that well, the, horizon. The market was slowing, but pricing didn't really slow down ah. uh, until uh, probably about uh, six or seven months after the index uh, went down. So you know, again, pricing is a trailing indicator and is a it, you know the last thing to turn around. There are other indicators that sort of confirm the message that the market index is giving. Okay, now you mentioned that you do you you share how that Cromford index is is developed, but I, I'm also assuming that there are some mathematical formulas you use behind that are kind of proprietary. And if you shared them with me, you'd have to take me out behind the studio and silence me, kind of Russian mafia style, right? Uh, you'd probably fall asleep. Actually, <laughs> I tried to explain it to you because it's extremely lengthy and complicated. Uh, because what I try and do is get rid of all the seasonality. I look at history going back years, and there's all sorts of smoothing and rounding that formulate that uh, would probably just bore you to sleep. So I wouldn't shoot you, but you wouldn't remember what I told you anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Uh, Now, given, okay, we talked about the Crawford Index, a little bit of of, of how you develop it and all of that, but uh, how does it look for Phoenix uh, market today? Well, uh, it's looking very positive overall. We're um, in the, uh, right now we're at about 133 which means it's uh, good news for sellers, not so good for buyers. And the reason for that is not because of strong demand. Demand is only just very slightly above normal, but supply is low, uh, particularly at the low and medium price ranges, uh, extremely low, below about 250,000, which is where a lot of the transactions take place. As you move up in price, then the market gets less favorable to sellers we've got quite uh, a lot of supply of uh, luxury executive style homes so the market feels very different say in north scottsdale from what it does in west phoenix Mm -hmm. yeah as a matter of fact uh, i I did kind of take a peek this weekend because i was curious why i was having so much difficulty finding some properties for for clients in um, the uh, southwest valley kind of the avondale tullison which used to be you know heavily uh, hard hit with uh, with uh, the oh, yeah. distressed properties and all and and that index was well up over uh, 150 or something like that and yes. it was a very very strong market so nothing out so what you really the whole of the west is valley okay. is is really very short of supply Boy, I'm, you know, I can confirm that just being on the street, so there's no doubt about it. Okay, what do you use next to confirm that something may be changing? Like like in 2013, you would have looked at the Cromford Index and said, yeah. uh-oh, things are going. What, what's next? Would that be the pending sales you touched on? Um, actually, uh, before I look at pending, I look at mm-hmm. a thing I call day's inventory, 
and that basically takes the, um, the the number of active listings on the MLS and divides by the annual sales rate for the area you're considering. So it basically says how many how many days would it take to sell off all the homes that are for sale, mm-hmm. and uh, you know a typical number for that would be about 120 to 150 days. So okay. you know four or five months. And um, it does vary, however. You know, the more expensive areas tend to have a lot more inventory okay. at all times, and the cheapest areas have less inventory. So you really have got to compare with uh, each area with its own history rather than the overall average. But when that number drops very low, that means the market is very difficult for buyers. And when it drops, when it goes very high, it means it get, becomes quite difficult for sellers because they've got too much competition from other sellers. So that's mm-hmm. a key indicator to watch and it's possible for anybody to calculate that you don't need all the complicated formulae that i was talking about earlier mm-hmm. by looking at the annual sales rate it gets rid of the seasonality problem at least okay. with the sales you still get some seasonality for the um the supply but the demand seasonality is taken out so i like that indicator much better than the usual one that people talk about which is months of supply uh the trouble with months of supply I mean it's you're using the the monthly sales rate and that is extremely volatile from uh, based on seasonality you'll get very low sales in January and very high sales in May for example and doesn't necessarily mean the market has changed a lot even though the months of supply will drop dramatically between those two periods okay and just to clarify for one of our listeners here the uh, days of inventory you're looking at active listings divided by the annual sales uh, uh, volume basically yes and and expressing that in days mm-hmm. so yeah okay. uh that that uh i like to track and i like to compare one area with another and um and then if you compare that with the rolling average for that area it's just like looking at moving average indicators in the stock market when the mm-hmm. uh, days of inventory number drops below the moving average uh that's a a sign that the market is getting hot when it goes above it means a sign that the market's getting cool. And these signals only happen uh, quite infrequently. And like on the stock market, it can happen many times in a month. It tends to happen right. only once or twice a year in the real estate market. Okay. And again, on this indicator of the days of inventory, where do we look today? I mean, based on your comment of, of low supply, I assume that number is, is, is pretty dismal. It, it, well, it's not uh, dramatically lower than normal, okay. but it's well below normal. Um, we've seen uh, periods where the market was more extreme, certainly uh, in 2012, for example, the of inventory was well below right. where it is now. But the direction is important, not just the absolute number, and at the moment it's dropping. And if you look at some of those areas that you mentioned, Avondale, Tullison, also El Mirage, Youngtown, and mm-hmm. Glendale, and lots of areas of uh, West and South Phoenix, it's extremely low already and still getting lower. Uh, but uh, uh, by the same token, if you do the same calculation for um, the northeast valley, you'll get uh, much higher numbers. You know, somewhere like Fountain Hills, um, or North Scottsdale. Uh, that generally the more re- remote, luxurious, and expensive areas are the ones that have got the largest inventory relative demand sure. at the moment. Sure, there's the, not uh, that many buyers at that range. Uh, uh, well, it's not some, the, but the. Uh, the demand is not bad at all, actually. The problem is we've got a lot of people trying to sell. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not that there's a f- too few buyers. It's just got too many sellers competing with each other, and that tends to keep prices in check. So at the moment, we've got sort of very little upward price pressure on pricing at, in those sort of uh, outer luxury areas, but very strong pressure on pricing upwards in the uh, affordable parts of the valley where there just isn't enough available either to purchase or to rent. And um, at the moment, um, uh, a lot of that, uh, those areas are really have got their uh, homes in um, ownership by landlords who are renting them out with very high levels of occupancy. So there's really no reason for any landlord to sell, and that's really got quite a lot of the, the inventory locked up and not coming to market. Yeah, no, exactly. We we we're, we're now actually starting to step into that strategy of contacting some of those landlords and saying, "Hey, maybe you're tired of the uh, five T's, and uh, maybe you'd be willing to sell." But uh, so far, not not many responses. Not many responding because rents have been going up 
So, you know, they're quite happy with that. They're not getting significant vacancies, so they're happy with that. And the, the properties are appreciating too. So that's another third reason to be happy. So why would they want to change things? Um, I think they'll probably be holding on to most of those uh, rental properties until vacancies start to become more of an issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you're, I didn't have in my questions kind of on the rental market, but I think it's an important one. So uh, rental demand is strong in addition to the uh, a low supply of, of yes. uh, houses for sale. So we've kind of got this double whammy for anybody that's trying to rent a house. Is, uh, there, there are not many to uh, rent, and if they looked at the alternative of buying, there's not many uh, to buy either. So right. uh, ex- escaping from the rental market is not easy right now. It's not, unless you're willing to go a long way out of uh, the valley mm-hmm. into the sort of more remote areas. Uh, there's still more um, to choose from if you get a long way out, and prices will be lower as a result. Yeah, and they're actually still pretty hit with, uh, with some distressed properties uh, in, in some of the most outlying, like Buckeye and Queen Creek. So definitely mm-hmm. uh, definitely, you know, different markets, but it is, it is a long way out, especially... Uh, you know, they're 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 big areas in themselves. It's not like they're they're just remote, but they're also within themselves some big differences in distance. Oh yeah, and in fact, uh, you mentioned Queen Creek. I would say you know Queen Creek town itself is um, similar to the rest of the valley. You have to go a long way down the Hunt Highway before you start seeing a lot more supply. Uh, and uh, even Florence is warming up now. You probably have to go beyond Florence towards Coolidge to get uh, a lot of. Uh, Wow. Almost at a reasonable price because uh, you know the the outer boundary is expanding uh, as the market heats up. Okay, one more clarification question from this uh, from our from our listener, which I always love to see. Uh, the annual when you mentioned annual sales, you're not looking at the calendar annual. You're looking at the uh, the last twelve months, basically. Uh, exactly. Of the sales you'd look at, correct? Yeah, I don't measure it on a calendar basis. I say, for example, today, um, I say everything that sold from. Um, May 25th last year to May 24th this year is my annual sales. Okay, and for the subscribers, it would be easier to look at, uh, let's say, uh, uh, the the April through, uh, uh, or I should say, probably May through April data, since we're not necessarily going to see the data. If you want to do it on a monthly basis, I'm pretty obsessive about this, so a lot of these things I calculate either each week or every day. So in in my case, I use whatever is the latest data I've got and just take (laughs) 365 days' worth of it. Yeah, you've got you've got a big advantage over the users of the spreadsheet who are going to keep track of the monthly monthly sales numbers and whatever to do that do it on their own. Okay, fair enough. Uh, what what are some of the next indicators you would use in that kind of lead indicator process, both in confirming and uh, seeing that uh, something is is dramatically changing? Well, the, you mentioned already the the pending listing count. That's my okay. next most important thing. Uh, these days, I like to include the UCB listings, which many listeners probably don't know what that is, but that means under contract accepting backup offers. So uh, the pending listings have been taken off the market, but they haven't closed yet. The UCB listings have a contract, but they're still being marketed for backup offers. Mm -hmm. But both of them are in escrow with the title company and expecting to close. So these are the the very important things to watch to see how many of those are there, what's their pricing, because that tells you what's going to happen when we actually get the the deals closed. And um, you can't really use that count on its own compared with, say, last month because it's very seasonal. But what I'd like to do is keep track of what the count was last year and the year before at this same mm-hmm. date. So I look at every May 25th for the last 15 years and say, what does this count look like? Is it better or worse? And that the trend, uh, when you look at it graphically, is a very good indicator of whether the market is heating up or cooling down. And that's something, again, you can do even for a, quite a small area it doesn't have to be the whole valley. You can look at just a, uh, somewhere like McDowell Mountain Ranch uh, and say, what's that looking like? Um, so that's ver- very easy to um, calculate as long as you've got a historical database. It's very difficult to calculate if you've got no history. And so the advantage I have is I've got the MLS records for um, the last 15 years, and therefore I can go and see what actually was pending um, or UCB at any point in the past. It sounds more dramatic if you said, if I got it for the whole century. <laughs> well, uh, I don't even think the MLS has it for the whole century because they threw out their uh, system and installed a new one in 2000. So the database that's accessible doesn't go back to 1999. 
unlike the public records, where we've you know, oh, actually got good sales data that go back uh, at least into the 60s and probably a little earlier, too. Sure, I understand. Now, but if we think about the 21st century, you've got uh, you've got virtually the entire entire century. I uh, have the entire millennium. That, 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 okay, <laughs> yeah, maybe that's another way to. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yes. another, I, I guess that's a more accurate term. Now, on the UCB, I'm just curious because I would think with the low supply that more people are accepting contracts and continuing to uh, to. Uh, or, or, you know, basically sign off and say, hey, okay, until you have your financing, I'm going to continue to market. So I assume UCB yeah. is, is actually growing. Well, that's why I tend to use it more these days, because it's becoming a more more significant factor, not just for the reason you mentioned, but also if it is still active, then it's appearing on the Internet uh, sites like Zillow and Trulia and, mm-hmm. you know, agents like the exposure that gives them. So there are a lot of advantages to an agent to have a listing in UCB as well as advantages to the the, the seller themselves. So um, I'm seeing a strong trend over the last three years towards uh, UCB, and it's grown from uh, maybe uh, 5% to 35% uh, of the um, under-contract uh, listings, which includes both pending and UCB. Okay. All right. Now we have a feel for your analysis process based on what we just covered. What does it tell you about the current housing market in the Phoenix area? Is it uh, is it doing well? Is it uh, strong? Uh, well, it's it's certainly bounced back from last year. Demand mm-hmm. uh, came back from well below normal to normal, but the trend at the moment is that that demand is not sort of growing. It's kind of stabilized. Uh, I measure it about two percent above normal, barely different from normal. But okay. what is um, alarming is how supply is continuing to fall, particularly at that low end. So buyers are going to have even more difficulty trying to find a home, and they'll find that uh, even though demand's not particularly high, every home that comes on the market is likely to have multiple people trying to buy it. And that's that sort of frenzy is what drives prices higher. Uh, so I, I would say particularly below 300,000 and even more so below 200,000, there's a strong upward uh, push in pricing, which sellers haven't fully appreciated yet. I mean, the, one of the problems is, sure. even if you get a, a very strong offer, is it going to appraise? And the appraisal right. as appraisers tend to start, operate as a sort of break on the market in both directions, because they're looking backwards at recent history and trying to make your price fit um, the prices from up to six months ago. So that, that tends to mod- moderate any sort of... Uh, sudden increase in pricing. Uh, once you get above 300,000, the pressure is much lower because there's still plenty of supply. And in fact, that's where the majority of new homes are being constructed. So that adds to the existing supply. And then once you get above 500,000, I'd say there's uh, perfectly adequate in, uh, supply and there's much less pressure on, on pricing. So uh, the, the reason for the overall market looking so strong is that the bulk of the Sales are below 500,000 in terms of uh, unit quantities. So the overall market is looking pretty strong and getting uh, stronger each day at the moment. Of course, you know, who can say whether it'll be that way in a month's time? That's what makes my life interesting. It uh, can change direction for no apparent reason. And so I do like to keep on top of it rather than just assume things are going to move forward in the same direction. Okay. We should tell those uh, listeners who just tuned in, you're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. If you missed the earlier part of the show, you can listen to your earlier portion on the archive. And if you missed prior shows, you'll find them on that archive to wealthdna.us. Today, our guest is Michael Orr. Our topic is State of the Housing Market. Michael Orr is the founder of the Cromford Report, director of the Center for uh, Real Estate Theory and Practice within the W.P. Carey School of Business at ASU. Now, Michael, economists would hold everything constant and say, you know, the, the, it's going to do real well this year because of this Im- imbalance. But you know that there are other factors out there. There's seasonality, which, um, you know, we're about to leave the peak selling season. There are potential changes in interest rates. And, of course, the government might step in to help, quote-unquote. Uh, how does the reality affect your view for the rest of the year? Well, uh, seasonality, as you mentioned, is pretty important. Generally, uh, March through June are the top months for sales, and um, to make that happen, really February through May are the top months for contracts to be written. Once you get into July, things slow down quite a bit, 
and um, that's particularly true of the more expensive market. People who can afford an expensive home can usually afford mm-hmm. to be somewhere other than Phoenix when it gets above 110. <laughs> and uh, they, uh, so that, you know, there's very little buying going on. Um, during the summer months, the the investors tend to keep going, but actually investors are um, below normal in their interest at the moment. There, there are investment opportunities in the country, but there's very little available at bargain prices in Phoenix right now. So um, I think we're going to have another pretty quiet um, period from July to September. Usually pricing drifts down a little bit for those three months, even in the best year. Uh, prices go up between February and June and then go down a little bit between uh, June and September. And then they start moving back upwards again once we get uh, snowbirds coming back in the fourth quarter. The other fact you mentioned, interest rates. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I tend to think interest rates are less significant than most other people. I mean, the, the, you know, people on Wall Street tend to think interest rates are everything to the real estate market. I don't agree with that. Uh, they obviously, if interest rates go up, then it makes uh, any particular home a little less affordable. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily directly suppress demand. Sometimes if interest rates have been well signaled and the movement is not too high, it actually increases people's desire to, to lock the current rate in and mm-hmm. um, get that home sorted out rather than waiting for them to go higher still. The other thing that is more important in my mind is the um, the attitude of lenders to approving loans rather than the, the rates themselves. So, you know, if a lot of them are being denied, then that suppresses demand because it's not actionable demand. If you want to buy a house, but you can't get approval for the loan, then you're not really real demand. Uh, but it, and it, at the moment, there's a trend towards slightly looser underwriting standards, which is being led by the small independent um non-bank lenders more than the large mm-hmm. lenders we've got used to depending on. Uh, but they're coming up with more creative schemes to get people into homes, even if they don't have a huge down payment. We don't have um, uh, the same sort of crazy loans that we had back in 2005, where people were you know, borrowing 110%, putting nothing down, in fact, getting money back. That, that's obviously uh, one of the causes of the the crash that happened. So we're not getting into what I think is dangerous territories, but we are getting into a position where more people can qualify and get into a home. And so it's the loan is becoming less of an issue, and actually finding the home is becoming more of an issue. Uh, the interest rates, if they jump up dramatically, unexpectedly, mm-hmm. that tends to squash demand. People get sort of get a sort of shock and sit back and think, well, maybe we'll just sit around and wait and see what happens. So, but um, Currently, a lot of people are expecting interest rates to rise, so it won't be a shock if it happens. Okay. So really, the ability to lend, and, and quite frankly, if uh, you have a choice of listening to Mike Lohr or Wall Street on real estate, I'll listen to you, and I'm, I'm 100% in your camp. So Thank I agree you. within that one. Hey, I looked at the last 12 months of data over the weekend. There's about 77,000 homes sold in the uh, area you cover in this Phoenix metro area. Uh, But there are also these boomerang buyers out there waiting to buy uh, when they can get the financing. Can you explain to us what these, uh, you know, what uh, these boomerang buyers are and and why they're kind of in the wings? Yeah, the the term refers to people who've been through either a short sale or a foreclosure in the recent past. And Mm -hmm. uh, then uh, when that's on your credit report, basically you're going to get denied a loan for a period of years, and it, the number of years depends on who you're applying to for the loan. But the conventional loans, which are like 65% of the market, have a seven-year wait period for a foreclosure and a four-year wait period for a short sale. There are some other lenders who will have shorter times, but the majority of people are going to wait seven years for a conventional-style loan. And that means if you were foreclosed in 2008, in 2015, you're breaking out of that penalty box and able to apply for a conventional loan again. So for those people who've got their finances back in good order and got a good job and all the other requirements, they're going to be able to qualify, and they wouldn't have been able to qualify last year. So that creates increasing demand over the next uh, four or five years because the peak foreclosures happened between 2008 and 2012. So those people coming out of the penalty box will be doing it 2015 to 2020. And um, that 
that, that I think we're going to have a sort of bulge of demand developing from those boomerangs. And it's it's a significant bulge because one in four homes in Maricopa County went through either a short sale or a foreclosure. So, uh, you know, this could be a very significant trend over the next uh, four or five years. All right. Now, that's a, a group that our sponsor has been helping buy homes while the banks weren't. So I kind of know the numbers, or at least from, from their perspective. Uh, you've done a lot of analysis in, uh, on this group of boomerang buyers. How big are they, and um, how many of them would you expect? Is it kind of like 20% of them a year would, would kick in as, as being of you know uh, additional potential buyers? Well, it's difficult to know what their psychology is. I can measure, you know, Understand facts and numbers. I can count things. So I can, I know how many people went through, or at least I know how many homes went through foreclosures. Now, mm-hmm. some of those homes were owned by investors who are in a different situation. Sure. But if we discount them and look at those people who are owner-occupiers, there's a very large number of people who are at least potentially boomerang buyers. What you don't know is whether the, the whole experience has put them off owning a home ever again. I mean, I have heard sure. people saying, because of my foreclosure, I'm going to rent for the rest of my life. But others, you know, enjoy owning. You know, one of the problems with renting is you've got to follow the landlord's rules. You know, if the rule is no pets, then and you want to own a pet, then you've got to get back into owning your home. There's um, uh, probably a large number of people like that, but exactly how many and how quickly do they get the uh, their credit score back to a level sufficient to qualify is uncertain. But I think. It, we're very sensitive to um, changes in underwriting. So the, at the moment, the FHA loan is growing again in popularity because it, because it has shorter times for um, coming out of the penalty box, and it also has lower credit score acceptability. Its main disadvantage is it tops out at 270000 just over 270000 So it doesn't really work for the more expensive homes. But for people who are wanting to buy a home up to, say, 300000 um that's a, a favorite uh, solution right now. And um, we're seeing the acceptable credit scores start to lower a little bit. <coughs> Excuse me. I have, um, therefore, that as one of the key reasons why it's the market under 300000 that is uh, heating up much more than the market over 300000 Okay, fair point. Now, uh, we've, we've estimated that number somewhere between 200,000 and 300,000 potential buyers mm-hmm. that will be re-entering the market. Uh, and, and again, the exact number isn't, isn't, is probably less important. But if we compare that to the 77,000 that have been sold in the last 12 months, that's a huge influence on potential demand. It is. Uh, and, you know, some of those people uh, won't come back or have moved away or sure. something's happened to them. But, you know, let's say it was only 170,000. That's still mm-hmm. two years mm-hmm. worth of demand right. to be squeezed back in. And of course, if those people are currently renting, when they do decide to buy, that's going to lower demand for rentals. So at some point, I expect it to be a little easier to find a rental when, when more of those people are currently renting have decided to buy. The overall problem, however, is that we've built so few new homes in the last eight years that we really don't have enough homes for, to rent or buy given the growth in the population. So we're not going to suddenly break out of the uh, the under-building uh, problem overnight. It's not really possible to dramatically grow construction numbers if we don't have the skilled labor to do it, and we don't. You know, One of the biggest problems in, in new home development is getting hold of sufficient skilled people to put a home together. No, that and, was one of your uh, so early predictions that uh, surprised me, and uh, you, you mentioned it on this show, and that really has come to pass. Yeah, you talk to almost any builder, um, and you know at least one of their trades is in short supply. Whether it's plumbers, roofers, framers, whatever it is, they're having trouble getting enough teams to work on um, the, what they'd like to put together. And of course, we're currently in single-family homes, only building about a third of the number of homes we were building back in the late 1990s. So, um, if we went back to a normal level of about 2,500 new homes a month, that would mean trebling the current volume. And we don't have three times the the people to, to, to build those homes. 
fair point. But uh, if I put that together, this gets us to the wealth building question here. If I put those things together, the number of uh, houses being sold and the currently strong demand, we've got this large boomerang population that will slowly trickle back in, very few houses being built. I mean, that sounds to me like a great market for investing in houses. Uh, am, I, am I missing something? I think, um, uh, you know, overall, the uh, the prospects for housing in Phoenix is very strong. Um, the, the the main factor I like to look at is well which areas which um, price ranges are going to be most affected, and um, I'm a little concerned about how few homes are available that are affordable to the regular folks either to rent. I mean we've got very few rentals under twelve hundred dollars a month, and we've got very few homes to buy under two hundred thousand. Now, if you're wanting to spend two thousand a month, or you're wanting to spend five hundred thousand on a home, you, you know things are fine. You can find mm-hmm. uh, good selection, but a lot of the jobs that are being created, and we've got quite reasonable job creation numbers in Phoenix right now, are not, you know, sufficient to allow you to buy a five hundred thousand dollar home, and um, or to rent something for two thousand a month. The jobs are, you know, not as well paid as the jobs that are being created in, say, Silicon Valley. So we need more accommodation that is affordable to people with regular type jobs. And I think there's definitely opportunities for investors and developers to respond to that uh, shortage. Okay. Now, one of the kind of related topics to that is is a lot of hearsay on whether housing prices even keep up with inflation. I think we got a recency bias uh, on that one. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us the truth. You've analyzed uh, history on this in fairly long amount, of, you know, fairly, fairly long period of history. Um, how how do housing prices do versus inflation? Well, generally, uh, in the long term, they keep track with inflation, and uh, we have a recent example. If we go back to the start of the millennium. Uh, home prices uh, 2000 to 2001 were around $100 a square foot in Phoenix overall. Mm-hmm. And right now they're about 132 133 And if you apply the consumer price index to 100 and take it forward to 2015, you get to 134 So over that period, home prices are actually recovered. They've gone well beyond inflation, collapsed, and now recovered to about the same as they would have as, as everything else has uh, changed in price. So you could say, be a pessimist and say, well, home prices haven't really changed in the last 15 years when you adjust for a, a change in mm-hmm. the value of the dollar, and I would agree. On the other hand, right now, the, the low supply is probably going to apply more upward pressure. Inflation is extremely tame, so I expect over the next short term, maybe two, three years, that the home prices will increase faster than inflation. Um, but when you take the long-term view, generally speaking, over a mm-hmm. you know, century or so, the home prices inflation keep uh, pretty much in track with each other. Okay. And with that, so somebody is saying, well, you know, I'll kind of wait till the next time housing prices collapse and then I'll buy a house. Uh, they could have a long wait, which might be their life. They may very well be dead by then. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, well, <laughs> they, well I mean, said. Collapses in home prices, uh, you know, tend to happen no more frequently than about two or three times a century. So, you know, don't expect another bubble and collapse uh, in the immediate future. And I, I know some people are predicting that. Some sure. people predict it constantly, but there is absolutely no sign of a a bubble-like situation at the moment or a collapse in pricing. Uh, And if you wait for that reason, you're probably making a big mistake. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question that I've bugged you about in the past a little bit is, uh, and I'll I'll use Florida as an example, my son and two very very good friends that are investors in real estate uh, are in various parts of Florida and they are scattered around. What would it take for one or two of them to work with you and expand the uh, Cromford report into into a state like Florida, either as a subsidiary partnership, maybe a franchise? Obviously, it's going to be a lot of work, but uh, are you open to something like that? I mean, the rest of the world could use this. Well, sure. I, you know, I'm uh, uh, willing to explain to people what I do, and if they have the time and the initiative of wanting to do it, then that's uh, probably 50% of the issue. The other issue is getting access to the data. I mean, the uh, MLS data, is, its availability depends on the policies of the local MLS, and I have mm-hmm. no idea what they're like in Florida. The Armless here in Phoenix has been extremely helpful to me over the last uh, eight years and been very good to work with. Uh, but 
who knows what would happen if you tried it somewhere else. We do have the big advantage, of course, that we only have one MLS, and uh, that means we can cover the entire territory with one agreement, and there's no sort of uh, competition between MLSs as you would find in some areas. The other thing is you do need a lot of local knowledge. You know, there's no way sure. I could cover Florida because oh, exactly you know, everywhere you go is lots of complexities which takes time to understand. Sure. So if Plus there was somebody who really, um, really knew the local area, had access to both the public record and the MLS data, they could probably duplicate what I'm doing, and I'd be very happy to work with them to, um, you know, explain how to to do the same sort of thing I did, and they could probably. Uh, expand on that and do some even more creative things. Well, you've got the tools available, so I think some sort of partnership would be would be really appropriate. Let's remind yep. our listeners how they'd contact you, learn more about the Crawford Report and your work at ASU. Give us those websites again for... Uh, okay. Well, the email for me at uh, ASU is mike.orr at asu.edu. Mm-hmm. And the Cromford Report website, where there is also a link to contact me, is www.cromfordreport.com. Excellent. And, of course, your quote at the newspaper show up on televised interviews a lot, so people can keep track of some of your uh, your commentary there as well. Sure. Uh, uh, we've covered a lot of aspects of the state of the housing market today. Are there some key ones you'd want to emphasize and want to surprise me with, like you did once with the uh, with the labor market, which was right on? Uh, are there some you know key points we didn't get a chance to talk about? Well, I think we've probably covered the main one that's on top of my mind at the moment, is and this is the... Um, shortage of affordable housing in the Phoenix area, um, particularly in the West Valley, South Valley, and in the inner Southeast Valley, sort of Tempe and inner Mesa, Chandler, Gilbert area. Uh, I'm struggling to come up with what we can do about it because there are just too many people wanting to live in those areas for the number of homes. So it's not like they you know, can rent instead of buying or buy instead of rent. There's just a shortage of homes in that area. And um, that's this kind of question that's really top of mind for me is, uh, is there some way in which we can quickly create more housing units that are closer into the center? There's plenty of opportunity on the outskirts, but these days there's a lot of people who don't want to be that far out. They want to be closer to the nice restaurants, to shopping centers and all those things. And that's really um one of the challenges that both cities and real estate developers have to solve over the next few years. Well, the key thing is to get the message out. I think uh, you know, let's let's keep doing that. We'll uh, we'll work together to kind of get that message out. And I think there are solutions. We don't have to fix it all, but if people are aware of it, investors especially are aware of the opportunity. Um, it'll happen. Yep. Thanks, Ron. All right, always a pleasure having you as a guest, uh, Michael. Hope you'll join us again. Keep you keep us abreast of what's changing the housing market. I'd be delighted. All right. Thank you for being here. That was a lot of great information we just covered today, and we certainly couldn't cover every aspect of the housing market. Now, many financial advisors will tell you that stocks and bonds are a better way to invest, and stocks appreciate more than real estate, and bonds give you a better regular income. Let me just mention four reasons, and I'll touch on a couple I already mentioned earlier, to caution you about that advice. And here are the, the, the four that first come to mind. First of all, those financial advisors don't earn a commission if you move in your money into real estate. It actually reduces their income. They also ignore the fact that when you own an investment property, you earn substantial cash flow. You don't really count on the uh, appreciation. You've got a major tax reduction due to the depreciation. Call it a tax shelter if you want to. Real estate and the financial markets are not correlated. This is my third reason. So when one zigs, very often the other zags provide some great diversification. And the fourth is investing in real estate is secured and insured, whereas investing in the financial markets is not. At the very beginning, I mentioned another. Real estate doesn't go down to zero. When a company goes bankrupt, their stock and often their bonds become worthless. How's your investment in Enron stock and bonds doing lately? During the intro, you heard one of the major problems with real estate. I'll kind of give you the other side of the coin. And that was from Robert Kiyosaki and Sharon Lecter. The problem with real estate is that it's local. You have to understand the local market. Now, fortunately, we have access, access excuse me, to experts like Michael Orr that can fill us in on local markets. And I'm very fortunate to be investing in the area he analyzes. Now, incidentally, my success in achieving the financial holy grail, which is income for life, is largely due to shifting a large portion of my assets into real estate. 
Regular listeners of the Wealth DNA radio show certainly know our objective is to help a million people become millionaires. I'm confident some of the information we discussed today will be helpful in your journey to become one of those millionaires. And remember, one of the best ways to increase your wealth Tune into the show twice a month. We'll share the great, uh, great ideas. We'll share the investment fundamentals, and we'll talk about things like investing in real estate. Many thanks to BI Solutions Corp. for sponsoring today's show. They are a real estate uh, fund based in the Phoenix Scottsdale area. Our next Wealth DNA Radio Show, same time. It'll be second Monday of June, and that is June 8th. Again, 9 a.m. Arizona, same time, same place. Our guest will be Richard Melancon. He'll be talking about how you can afford the good life. As usual, we'll provide the lineup of guests and topics on WealthDNA.us, and there you'll find the archive of past shows. Now, if you've got some comments, questions, suggestions on today's topic, you have trouble finding some shows, or you just want us to keep you posted, send an email to me, ron at WealthDNA.us. US. We'll keep posted about future shows and events. Happy investing and talking to the family about investing in real estate. You've been listening to Wealth DNA with Ron Naraki on Arizona Boomer Radio. Arizona Boomer Radio is produced by the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated and can be heard Monday through Friday. You can sign up for their online magazine at boomerandthebabe.com. To reach the Boomer and the Babe, email host at boomerandthebabe.com or friend them on facebook.com slash boomerandbabe. And on Blog Talk, you can friend them at blogtalkradio.com slash boomerandbabe. Follow their tweets at twitter.com slash boomerandbabe. Be sure to make the second half of your life the best half of your life. And remember, at 50, you're just getting started. 